Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning through the present. And today we want to welcome back one of our all-time favorites, Lindsay Randall. Lindsay, welcome and thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me back. Well, listeners, you're probably very familiar with Lindsay's voice. Uh, she has been on several times. She's actually one of my all-time favorites to have on the program and talk about her different experiences in American history. So, Lindsay, if someone has not listened to you in the past, could you share a little bit of your background and your education, and we'll get right into your topic. Absolutely. I have a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. I have a master's degree in teaching secondary social studies, and I have been a history teacher at the high school level for 17 years. I grew up in the Mississippi River Delta region. That's it? <laughs> you're, um, being, you're being very mild. Okay, I'm going to pick a, uh, she is a wife, a mother of, a, I believe, a ninth grader. Lindsay, is that correct? Uh, seventh grader, but so, I'm sorry, seventh grader. Uh, Lindsay is a walker, a runner. She's in a, a woman's Bible study. She is a phenomenal baker. She has more energy than 12 people put together. Um, <laughs> she has the greatest dog in the world. And she's also won two Teacher of the Year awards during her teaching career. So you're being very modest, Lindsay. Oh, thank you. And, and, Lindsay, tell the listeners your topic, and then I'm going to ask you a couple of questions before you get into your topic. Absolutely. Today we're talking about Nathan Bedford Forrest, a polarizing figure for sure, but an important figure in the history of the South. What perked your interest in reading and studying about Nathan Bedford Forrest? Well, really, growing up, I had heard of Nathan Bedford Forrest. I grew up over on the Mississippi River, and Forrest spent much of his life in Memphis, Tennessee. And so I had heard about him growing up, really only probably a one-sided story about Forrest. And I just was more curious about him as I did the research for our Vicksburg interview. His name came up a couple of times, and I thought, you know, it's time to kind of dig into who he was as a person. And it was really an interesting dig. And listeners, we as historians and teachers, you know, we constantly are teaching and talking about never pigeonhole someone and, you know, continue to look for the truth. So, Lindsay, I want to congratulate you. You have picked a topic that so many over our history have just pigeonholed Nathan Bedford Forrest into one category and just have put it aside. And you have taken up an interest in a person that is far more complicated than what the majority of Americans have ever looked at this person and just simply have pigeonholed him. So what you've done is being a great historian, being a, a wonderful, continuing, learned teacher and very courageous in what you've done. So let me congratulate you for that, because when you mentioned this to me several months ago, it also, I must confess, pigeonholed him for such a long period of time. And as you were reading and talking about him, I began to do that also and have come up with so many different questions and different ideas about Bedford Forest. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. I just gave you a five minute compliment and I get three words back. Thank you. <laughs> Arch, <laughs> are so thoughtful. Uh, <laughs> listeners, Lindsay and I kid a lot. 
obviously she's from the South and she doesn't share the same type of humor as we from the North do, but she gets it and understands it. So <laughs> we kid each other a lot. So share with us this polarizing figure of Nathan Bedford Forrest and how complicated he was as a human being and what people have seemed to think he was all these years after the Civil War. Absolutely. So Nathan Bedford Forrest has been called the Wizard of the Saddle, rose from log cabin, poverty, frontier upbringing to wealth as an antebellum cotton and slave trader, a millionaire, the only military soldier or Confederacy to join the military as a private and rise to the rank of lieutenant general. There's kind of this myth that's developed around Forrest, uh, really two different myths, I think. In the South, he's a key figure for the lost cause narrative, Confederacy. In many other parts of the country, he's viewed as the butcher of Fort Pillow and evil founder of the Ku Klux Klan. But in reality, he's an extremely complex figure. Through my research, I've come to view him as a fearless cavalier, He was often quiet, but capable of violent rages, uneducated, but not illiterate. Just someone who lived in the world he lived in and was created by that world, but who rose to to great prominence and who did a lot of great things alongside some, some pretty terrible things. Leslie, would you explain for our listeners the lost cause theory or the lost cause concept? Because some of them might not understand what that is or was. Absolutely. In American history, the lost cause narrative of the Confederacy claims for the most part that the Confederate states of the American Civil War were kind of a just and heroic attempt to push states' rights and that the war itself was not centered on slavery. First kind of came to prominence in 1866. It's really used to influence historically a lot of racist attitudes and in some instances, religious attitudes in in the South and and other parts of the country today. And did General Forrest adhere to the lost cause theory? And if he did, did he hold to it for the rest of his life or did he come away from it? My research has led me to believe that he didn't really hold to it. He acknowledged during the Civil War that they were fighting for slavery in the aftermath of the war when he returned to kind of living life as a a non-combatant. He worked hard to continue that pre-war status quo of white authority and white supremacy and even became the first national leader of the Ku Klux Klan. But... He only did that role for about two years. And when the Klan moved from being more a political tool to kind of a disjointed group that was rising in violence, he called for the disbandment of the Klan later in his life. And and he doesn't live much longer. He dies in the 1870s. He becomes quite religious, Presbyterian, and kind of renounces all of that, works really to bring about a racial reconciliation in the South the last two years of his life. It's not a popular move in his political and friend circles. Many of the people that he had once been friends with kind of denounce his attempt at this racial reconciliation. But he does change toward the end of his life, his opinions about race. And you said that he was the wizard of the saddle. What was a little bit of involvement in many battles in the Civil War for the Confederate States? Yeah, so he is, like many Southern men of wealth, he is an exceptional horseman. 
and he is kind of noted to be this wizard of the saddle in the summer of 1862 as he becomes what many would call the most feared cavalry commander. He is harassing General Grant's Vicksburg campaign and his lightning raids and his unpredictable nature make him virtually impossible to pin down as a moving target. And that that kind of earns him that nickname, the Wizard of the Saddle, because he's so good at what he does. And, And what's really interesting to me about that is he does that with very little education. Bedford Force, he goes by his middle name, Bedford. That's super common in the South. To have a family name as your first name and go by your middle name. So he actually goes by his middle name, Bedford. He is only given about six months of formal education in his life. And we can tell that in some of his existing letters. His spelling was was pretty bad. And he used what was considered lower class Southern slang in a lot of his speeches and, and writings. He never went to military academy. In fact, he looks down pretty heavily on West Point education. But even through that, he becomes what many have called an untutored military genius. And there are arguments about how how good of a leader he was. But his ability to create these cavalry raids and movements that cause problems for what was maybe considered superior union forces are, are legend. And as we move through the war and we look at these battles and we can see how good of a general Forrest was and we move past the Civil War, what was his motivation for getting involved in the KKK originally? Mm-hmm. So you have to think a few things. Forrest has in his background, he made a lot of his money trading slaves. And that caused him some struggles. And Bedford Forrest in his life before the war desperately assumed the role of a gentleman. Even in a South powered by slave labor, a slave trader was not considered a man to be looked up to. And there was a stigma that was surrounding that, especially in higher society. The fact that he also didn't have the, maybe the language of a gentleman kind of played against him. But his location, where he was born in Tennessee, south of Nashville, was really considered the frontier at the time of his birth in the 1820s probably helped him in overcoming that stigma and earning money to buy some respect. The wealth and influence he achieved made some friends with a power elite helped him to rise to prominence. And then the war hit, and he spent a lot of his own money outfitting, equipping these men that he led in his cavalry um, divisions. And after the war, like many formerly prominent Southerners, he had lost most of that. And so his goal after the war is to recoup that. He wants to make connections. He gets involved in several things. He gets involved in like a fire insurance company. He gets involved in cotton trading again. Of course, slavery is is outlawed at this point. And so that's no longer he can't trade slaves. He gets involved in railroad building. And I really think a lot of the movement into the Klan is for him, it's networking but there's the other side of it that we can't deny, and that's, that's the racial issue that he and many Confederate veterans are facing in the South, and that's that there is a new political power. There are what he referred to as radical Republicans. There are freemen of color now that are getting involved in politics, and there are formerly enslaved people who are voting in ways that are not in line with what Forrest and his fellow veterans wanted. And so there is that desire to kind of force 
political ideas on people, and and they're going to do that any way they can, including the use of intimidation and, and fear. So when General Forrest is originally part of the Ku Klux Klan, you mentioned again, how long was he part of the Klan and his denunciation of the KKK? Absolutely. So in 1867, Forrest becomes the first and only Grand Wizard in the first era of the KKK. So if your listeners aren't familiar with this, there are really three major periods of the Ku Klux Klan. This one that starts right after the Civil War, much more focused on political strategy. Then the next iteration of the Klan is in the early 1900s. And then there's a third period of it that's going to rise during the Civil Rights Movement. And so Forrest is the Grand Wizard, the first national leader, galvanizing what was at the time a loose collection of what I would probably call social clubs into a reactionary instrument. He did not found the Klan. That's a common misconception. But he was active in the Klan from 1867 to 1869, at which point he ordered the Klan disbanded. I know later on, his grandson is going to become a Grand Dragon of the second iteration of the KKK in the state of Georgia. Historians kind of dispute for his role in the organization. Most agree he didn't found it, but many believe he was elected that grand wizard position in order to have a prominent former Confederate draw people in. And, and even during the Civil War, Forrest was often used for bringing people into the war. You know, at one point, Braxton Bragg takes Forrest out of command and sends him down to Alabama to get some new, fresh troops, which is not a great idea because Forrest is such a capable leader. I feel like taking one of the people that I read who talked about this, that it would be like taking your best batter out of a baseball game to go recruit fresh Mm -hmm. players. Right. So he's really good at speaking and and getting people to join. And so uh, his goals for the organization, we don't really know. He doesn't write a lot about it. Some say he wanted to combat what he saw as unfair, retaliatory practices associated with reconstruction. Others note that as the organization grew, it clearly worked to scare and attack former slaves, giving the basis for the white supremacy that exists even today to some extent. And we, as historians, hear oftentimes about this term, well, you're being revisionist or revisionist history. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is one of the things that I really appreciate in what you have done is all of us have these ideas about certain individuals or certain events. And when we begin to look underneath the surface, there's a whole different story possibly that is there. And you have uncovered some of that with Nathan Bedford Forrest, how the majority of Americans since the Civil War just pigeonholed him as being this Mm -hmm. white racist who started the Ku Klux Klan against African-Americans and minority groups. And there's a whole different story that's involved with General Forrest than just that easy stereotype that we have of him. Mm. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that kind of works against his legacy is one of the events of the Civil War that was so really awful and terrible was the Fort Pillow. Mm -hmm. You know, either Battle of Fort Pillow or the massacre at Fort Pillow in 1864. And I think that's something that bears kind of looking at. He was the leader in charge of men who committed atrocities there. Fort Pillow, though, if you look at it in context, um, it kind of helps make the picture a little clearer. Fort Pillow is this fort overlooking the Mississippi River in western Tennessee. It was a Confederate fort that had been captured and held for Union troops for most of the war in 1864, April of 1864, either under the orders of Forrest or because of his loss of control of his men. Those troops massacred 
over half of the black union garrison there, killing many of them after they had surrendered. The context of this fight is that floor was mainly filled with two groups, um, black soldiers. Some of them would have been freedmen from the north. Some of them would have been formerly enslaved Tennessee slaves. And the other group were white Tennesseans who were seen by the Confederate soldiers there as kind of traitors because they had not supported Tennessee's Confederate forces. Preceding the Fort Pillow massacre, Forrest sends some messages back and forth between himself and those in charge of Fort Pillow, the Union men who are holding it. He says in one of the letters, I cannot be responsible for the failure command. Probably the supreme flaw in his military record. He's never been cleared of perpetrating the massacre, but there's not a lot of evidence that he was personally responsible. In fact, there's no evidence that I could find that he was personally responsible. I spent a good amount of time reading through reports in the official records of the War of the Rebellion, volume 32. And most of what I saw were reports from people who witnessed soldiers killing unarmed African Union troops after they had surrendered. And research does indicate that the African-American troops sustained a, a significantly higher casualty rate than their white counterparts. And so that is something that kind of smears his legacy. Now, when I read his report on it, he said Forrest's argument is that they weren't there to purposely kill anyone who had surrendered, but that the fort never officially surrendered, that it's Forrest and his men who themselves cut the halyards, the flags down that ends the battle. And while those troops are being killed, the flag is still up. I, I don't know. It's it's a troubling report. But as like you said, as a historian, when I went back and I was reading the primary source account, I couldn't find anything that put that directly on Forrest ordering mm-hmm. the execution of certain the execution there, and yet he's taken the fall or the blame for that. It's interesting, Lizzie, that General Forrest totally dissolved himself from the Klan after a couple of years. And even mm-hmm. uh, as I was reading that General Order One, where you know he totally abolished himself and the Klan, and then by the end of his life, he advocated that admission to law schools from African Americans. Yeah, and, and you know we don't hear that. We just always hear that. Well. General Forrest started the Klan and he was a racist. And, you know, look where the Mm -hmm. Klan is today. And we're not listeners. We're not trying to set up the Ku Klux Klan here as some organization. We know what they are today. And yet it's wrong to tie General Nathan Bedford Forrest to what the Klan is today from where it was when he dissolved himself from that group. Absolutely. In 1869, the Klan had become what he considered ungovernable, and they were making it harder for Democrats to, he felt like, were making it harder for Democrats to gain political offices. And so he dissolved the Klan and ordered that the Klan uniforms be destroyed. He withdrew from participation. His declaration had little effect on anyone other than himself because few Klansmen actually dissolved. But what we do know is in the last years of his life, he gave speeches to black Southerner organizations, post-war organizations, advocating the improvement of their economic conditions and equal rights for all citizens. Just a few months before his death in 1877, he attended an African-American barbecue in Memphis, aiming to what some consider right his best wrongs. He encouraged African-Americans to, quote, work, be industrious, live honestly, and act truly as well as declaring that, quote, when you are oppressed, I'll come to your relief. 
And in fact, after he died, the newspaper articles about his funeral procession mentioned the marching, many African-Americans of the area marching in his funeral procession as well. And Lizzie, we remember uh, Charlottesville in 2017 when Dylan Roof there allegedly killed those nine black people. And what happened there, you know. Many people said, well, General Nathan Bedford Forrest would approve of that, which is absolutely wrong. And I was reading an article from a professor at LaGrange College who published the article in the Huffington Post, which isn't exactly a conservative newspaper. And he basically said, if any of you think that Bedford Forrest would approve of what happened in Charlottesville, then you're absolutely wrong and you don't know Bedford Forrest at all. Absolutely. So in his mind, in your research, what began to pull him away from the Ku Klux Klan and then take such an adamant stand against being against black people? Absolutely. I think that what really Bedford Forrest, more than anything else after the Civil War, was interested in the economic revival of the state of Tennessee and the rest of the South in general. And anything that was going to work against that, he would not have been in support of. And so initially, after the war, he believed that the best thing would be for a return to the status quo of white power in Tennessee because he had gained so much success that way beforehand. However, as time goes on, he comes to realize that the only real way to rebuild the South is going to be with free African labor. In fact, he even advocates for bringing in Africans from Africa as immigrants and Chinese workers Mm -hmm. to help build some of these railroads that he's pushing for. And so I think the main thing that pulls him away initially is understanding that the Klan is only causing economic problems for the South. And then as we get further into the 1870s, conscience begins troubling him. And he attends a church meeting, a Presbyterian church meeting with his wife. And his wife had always been religious, and she had always attended church by herself. And then he just attends one day and he is convicted by a sermon that he hears and stays after and talks with the preacher who encourages them to go read in Psalms. And he just has a complete change of who he is. He becomes much more calm. You know, and I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier in the interview that he was thrown to rages, out of control rages, and more than once severely injured some of his own men out of anger. That person disappears after war years. You know, he becomes religious. He works for that racial reconciliation. He becomes more soft-spoken and not as prone to kind of that frontier violence that he had been so prone to his whole life. And it really changes who he is. And I read, Lindsay, that when he becomes somewhat religious in his life, and that's not the word I probably should use, but he began to realize that looking at human beings far differently than possibly a lot of other people did is it doesn't matter what color we are. God's children, you know, so. Right, absolutely. Share with our listeners, please, as we end up here, is there a particular book that you would encourage our listeners to read about General Forrest to get more of a balanced view of who this complicated person was? Absolutely. The biography that I spent most of my time in, published in 1993 by Jack Hurst, and it's just called Nathan Bedford Forrest. I do want to acknowledge that some people have kind of pointed to him as being maybe an apologist biographer. So to kind of balance that out, I also, like I said, spent time in volume 32 of the official records of the War of the Rebellion, which are available in PDF format online. I read a Slate article by Christopher Rhine, who is a Naval ROTC instructor at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
And I spent some time listening to a podcast called Portraits of Blue and Gray, biographical Civil War podcast. And so all of those things together really helped me get kind of a larger picture of who Forrest was in his lifetime. Well, Lindsay, again, I personally want to thank you for broaching the subject of this controversial figure and beginning to help me understand a much fuller and rounder picture of who Nathan Bedford Forrest was. So thank you for your courage and thank you for sharing more about and giving us information about Jeff. Forest. Thank you for giving them the opportunity. And listeners, I want you to know Lindsay is on her Christmas break from school and she's taken time out to do this for us. So we want to thank you for that and taking time away from your family during your holiday break. Thank you, Arch. My pleasure, Lindsay. So again, thank you for coming and sharing with us today. This is 1180 AM WFIL, Working for Your Liberty.